My brothers and sisters in the Lord, as we continue our Lenten journey, as we gather here in this church as disciples of the Lord Jesus, the question that I have for you to contemplate this morning is this. What is one of our greatest sins? What is one of our greatest sins? And so, my brothers and sisters, as we contemplate that question, I'm assuming as followers of Jesus, when you leave church this morning, you're not going to go out and murder someone or rob a bank or commit adultery. But in your life, what is one of your greatest sins? And as you contemplate that question, listen once again to the parable that Jesus tells. There was once a person who had a fig tree planted in his orchard. And when he came in search of fruit on it but found none, he said to the gardener, for three years now, I have come in search of fruit on this fig tree, but have found none. So cut it down. Why should it exhaust the soil? My friends, from that parable, we see that one of our greatest sins is the sin of doing nothing. It is the sin of inaction. It is the sin of sitting on our laurels. It is the sin of omission. Because oftentimes, our brothers and sisters, when we do our examination of conscience, we are very aware of our sins of commission, what we have done to offend the Lord, to offend one another. But oftentimes, we fail to look at some of our greatest sins is because we did not respond. It's the sin of inaction. It's the sin of doing nothing. And the reason why I say that, my friends, is we, as we look at the various parables that Jesus tells throughout the gospel, this is a very common theme. I'll give you another example. You remember the parable of the sheep and the goats. Remember the sheep go to the right, the goats to the left. Then he will say to those on the left, the goats, depart from me, you accursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. A stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you gave me no clothing. Ill and in prison, and you did not care for me. And they will say to him, Lord, when do we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or ill, or in prison, and not minister to your needs? He will answer them, Amen, I say to you, what you did not do for one of these least ones, you did not do for me. Once again, my friends, the sin of doing nothing, the sin of failing to care for the needs of others, to be able to act out of love and to be willing to sacrifice in order to meet whatever the need may be. Because you see, my brothers and sisters, as we well know, there can be no true love without sacrifice. And without sacrifice, my brothers and sisters, love begins to mean, begins to lose its true meaning when we talk about love from the sense of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus. We see the same thing in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember the parable, the rich man has all that he needs and Lazarus is sitting by the gate. And when they die, the rich man is in torment and Lazarus is at the bosom of Abraham. 
And the rich man says, Abraham, have Lazarus dip his finger in the water and come and cool my tongue. And we hear the exchange back and forth that there's a great chasm and no one can cross. You see, my brothers and sisters, what was the rich man's sin? It was not that he went outside and he kicked Lazarus. He didn't run Lazarus off. He didn't curse Lazarus. He simply ignored him. He didn't even realize Lazarus was there. Oftentimes, our brothers and sisters, the sin of doing nothing, the sin of inaction, the sin of omission is because we become so self-centered and only looking at my wants, my needs, my desires that we fail to look at the needs of the other. Now, those are only three examples of Jesus' parables that speak of that. I could give you examples that take us all the way to lunchtime, but have no fear, I won't. Just trust me on that. But you see, my brothers and sisters, if we desire to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, then we have to be able to reach out in love. We have to, be reached, we have to reach out to the needs of the other, whoever the other may be in our life. Maybe someone very close to us in our family, or maybe a complete stranger that the Lord has put in our path. But how do we respond? Do we respond out of love or do we simply ignore the person, the situation, whatever it may be, and only focus on me, myself, and I? You see, my brothers and sisters, the point of the parable is that all of us are called to bear fruit. And as we're called to bear fruit, as we're called to be able to meet the needs of others, we are reminded, my brothers and sisters, that in order to bear fruit, it doesn't mean that we have to have great degrees and great skills, because oftentimes I hear, well, Father, I can't do X, I can't do Y, I can't do Z, because I don't have the background, I don't have the skills, I don't have the gifts, I don't have this, I don't have that. But God is going to use what he has given us for his glory and for the glory of the kingdom. If we allow ourselves to reach out to others, whether it's to meet their physical needs or if we bear fruit, as St. Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And how many times, my brothers and sisters, are we opposite of all those things? We're not joyous. We're not at peace. We lack patience. We're not kind. We're certainly not generous. Our faith kind of wobbles and we lack self-control. You see, my friends, do we reach out to others for whatever gifts God has given us? True story, when I was doing my CPE, clinical pastoral education, as a seminarian, I was a hospital chaplain at St. Luke's in Houston, Texas. And while I was there, there was a woman, and she worked on the hospital's janitorial staff. She would go into the rooms and she would empty the waste baskets, she would mop the floors, she would tidy up while the patients were in there. And it was always amazing because every time she went into the room of a dying patient, when she left that room, that patient was filled with joy. That patient had a real sense of peace. Now you have to remember, this was a huge hospital. A huge hospital. You think university hospital is huge? These are huge medical complexes. So you have floors of people who are dying. Okay? And as this began to happen, 
The director of the palliative care unit there at the hospital noticed what this woman was doing. And she called her in and she said, may I ask you, what do you say to those patients when you go in? As you're emptying the waste baskets and mopping the floor. And the woman who is relatively in um, probably 60s, maybe late 60s, early 70s, she, was, she said that when I go in, I treat those individuals who are dying as if they're all-time friends. She said, I go in there and I talk to them and I love them and I tell them it's all going to be okay and that the Lord is going to provide and that the Lord is with them and we pray together and I give them assurance that I'm going to keep visiting them every day when I come in. She said, that's what I do. You see, my brothers and sisters, that woman, she didn't have a theology degree. She didn't have all sorts of gifts. She had a very rough life. When she was a very young person, she had a child three years old who had pneumonia. And she brought the child to a public clinic. And while she was waiting to be seen, the child died right there in the waiting room. Now, she could have been either a bitter person or she could allow God to use that great trial in order to bring comfort and joy to others. And that's what she chose as she was telling the story. And she did such a wonderful job by bringing those gifts to the forefront that the hospital decided to move her from being part of the janitorial staff to being a special counselor, a special chaplain to those who are dying. Because that was her gifts. You see, my friends, all of us have the gifts. The question is, do we use them? Do we use them to bear fruit in our lives? And thanks be to God, my friends, that our Lord is patient. Because the parable ends in a very interesting way. As we read on. He said to him in reply, Sir, leave it for this year also, one more year, and I shall cultivate the ground around it and fertilize it, and it may bear fruit in the future. If not, you can cut it down. You see, my brothers and sisters, I always like to look at every Lent as one more year. One more year that God has given us to continue to bear fruit. Even if we have it in the past, even if we've been lackadaisical in the past, whatever it may be, he has given us one more year. On Saturday during the day, I was speaking to a friend of mine. He's a loan officer at one of our local banks. And we were talking about different things, and the whole notion of a grace period came up. Now, you're probably familiar with the grace period, but if you're not, by definition, this is, a, this is what a grace period is. A grace period is defined as the additional period of time a lender or an insurer insurance policy issuer provides for a borrower to make past due payments on a debt without a penalty. A grace period. You see, my brothers and sisters, every single day the Lord has given us is another grace period, another opportunity to bear fruit in the vineyard. The question, my friends, is do we take advantage of it? Do we allow ourselves to be servants of the Lord? Do we reach out to others in their needs rather than only focusing on our own? And if we do, my friends, then we ask the Lord for the grace to be able to continue in that effort. And if we have failed in whatever way, then we ask God to strengthen us so that we may too leave this church and bear good fruit, abundant fruit, 
for God, his church, and his people.